First Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. God wants to speak to us this morning through this text concerning whether we should call our president Slick Willie. He wants to speak to us concerning Rush Limbaugh. He wants to speak to us concerning the spirit of rebellion and anti-authoritarianism in the world and sometimes in the church. He wants to speak to us concerning the foundation of law in morality. And he wants to speak to us most of all concerning how he relates to all of that and how Christians under him and for him live in a neo-pagan culture or society like ours. So what I'd like to do is uh, take the most important thing and begin there, namely how God relates to all of these things. The Bible is not a book about how to get along in the world. The Bible is a book about how to live to God in the world on the basis of how God has lived toward us. I love that phrase, living to God. And I get it from Paul in Galatians chapter uh, 2. He says, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I just love that phrase, living to God. Is that the way you think of your life? I live unto God. I live to God. That is, I think I live with God in view. I live under God's authority. I live on God the way I live on air and water and food. I live for God's reputation and for his glory. The Bible is a book not just about how to get along in the world, how to get your politics right or your family right or whatever, but how to live to God. It is a Godward book calling us to a Godward life. And so the most important thing in this text is seeing that. And the reason I say that is because God is in every verse. He's explicitly in four out of the five verses, and he's implicit in the other verse, namely verse 14, where he's not mentioned. But let's take them one at a time with this in view. What does God have to do with our social and political life? That's what this verse is about. I mean, this text is about our our social and political life has to do, according to this text, with Godwardness. Verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors. Now, the key phrase there, I think Russ read it just right as I heard him. 
is for the Lord's sake. If you miss that phrase, you get everything else wrong. There is a kind of submission and there is a kind of allegiance to authority that isn't Godward. It's not rooted in God. It's not born along by God. It is not for God's glory. And therefore, you can't just take a, a text like this and hammer away at submission to authority with it. You've got to take that key, distinctive, biblical phrase and say, when there's submission, if it's Christian submission, it is Godward submission. When you relate properly to policemen, it's a Godward relationship. When you relate properly to a president or a governor or a mayor or a system of politics and voting, if it's Christian, it's a Godward relationship. Christians do not submit to human institutions because they feel like it or because they have compliant personalities or because the institution might have coercive powers to make bad consequences for you if you don't submit. Those are not the reasons. The Christian steps back and instead of saying, how do I feel about this call to submit to this law? Or what will you do to me if I don't submit? Those are not the two driving questions. The driving question is, sovereign, what would you have me do? with regard to this call, to this institution to submit. And we key off of him. And if he says go, we go and we go for his sake. And if he says not, we don't for his sake. Submission is not the absolute in this verse. For the Lord's sake is the absolute. Now, why is this an urgent thing for Peter? Where does this come from? Boom, politics in the middle of a Bible book. We're trucking along here with... With lusts and living for the glory of God and fighting the fight of faith and whammo, we've got politics all of a sudden. Why? It's not a surprise if you've been with me. Go back to verse 9. You're a chosen race. Sometimes we spiritualize that thing right as though it had no worldly implications whatsoever. Well, Peter felt such implications in that he had to guard against it. You're a chosen race. You're a holy nation. You're God's own possession. Now verse 10. You're God's people, verse 11, you're aliens and strangers out there. Now, you can imagine that hearing that and believing it and feeling it, you'd say, well, fooey on Nero, Pilate, or anybody else for that matter, I'm a child of the king. Build your own little Christian enclave and ghetto and... Withdraw and they can do their thing and go to hell and we can do our thing and go to heaven. And and there's two separate, totally distinct, non-overlapping kingdoms. Wrong, Peter says. Wrong, wrong, wrong in this verse. While you are in this world, he says, you are citizens, to use the words of Augustine, of the city of God and the city of man. Or to use Luther's way of talking about it, there are two kingdoms, kingdom of God, kingdom of this world. And we are citizens in different senses of both, one being absolute, the other being relative, but real. And the, the Lord has brought us out of one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of his dear son. 
but then paradoxically has sent us, as it were, back in to this kingdom, free people now, bearing witness with new values, new standards, new priorities, new commitments, new absolutes, to bring all that to bear upon this fallen world order. That's what got Peter into this, because he has just said to all these Christians, you're God's people. You don't belong to America. You belong to the Bible, not the Constitution of America. You've been bought with a price. You don't belong to anybody else. And therefore, he teaches us carefully, lest we run away with our thought up implication of that. God's implication of that, namely. You now move in to those structures, those institutions that I ordained for the good of humanity while this world lasts, and you let your light shine there, and you bring right and wrong and truth and falsehood and beauty and ugliness to bear as I see them on that. That's verse 13. Let me sum up like this for verse 13. If I had... The president, or if I were in a place where there was a, a more totalitarian potentate, the way I would declare my submission would be to look them in the eye and say, I submit to you. I honor you, but not for your sake. I honor you for God's sake. I honor you because he owns you. He rules you. You have your standing in your office by virtue of his providential government of the world and he is over you and over me and he tells me what to do and I do what he tells me to do and while he tells me to submit I do submit to you for his glory and for his honor that's the way I would talk if some king called me to account for whether and why I should submit so verse 13 subordinates submission to a higher submission, namely to God, when it says submit for the Lord's sake. When we keep the speed limit, for the Lord's sake, all our driving is an act of worship. Okay? You, you surely aren't part of this 63 mile an hour speed limit around the Twin Cities, are you? You wouldn't do that. You know, they, let me put in a parenthesis here, which I didn't do in the first service. Um, whether you will get there on time is a great test of faith. And uh, the Lord is fully capable of honoring his word. Verse 14. Submit to kings and governors. Here's the new phrase. As sent by him... For the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So the new thing in this verse is that the king and the governor are for the rewarding of right and the punishing of wrong. Now, God's not mentioned in that verse. However, when you read about it and think about it, especially in relationship to the wider teaching on this stuff in the New Testament... You can't help but hear that this is God's purpose. Namely, God sends the king and governors so that in his purpose they will uphold right and punish wrong. Governors and kings don't always see it that way. 
Nero chopped off Paul's head and crucified Peter upside down. That was not the rewarding of good. This is God's purpose being articulated here for law and government and rulers. They are to uphold the right and they are to punish the wrong. Now, the biblical support for that is Romans 13:4, where Paul says the civil authority is a minister of God to you for good and it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon those who practice evil. So in God's hands, the purpose of government is to punish evil and to reward good. Government does not save anybody for heaven or send anybody to hell. Government is to restrain evil by punishing it and rewarding good. It is like a dam erected against the river of depravity flowing out of the human heart. That's what government's for, to erect a dam against the river of depravity so that Lest the dam break and the world be filled with anarchy, i.e. Rwanda, Somalia. There is a vivid portrayal for all the world to see what happens when God's order and institution is overthrown and despised and rejected. It is a precious thing to have laws and governors and policemen and jails, and courtrooms. It is precious beyond description. Just go to Rwanda, and you will fall in love with policemen. Verse 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. The will of God is the key here. It's the will of God that we do right on his terms and thus, over time, put to silence the ignorance of foolish men who are slandering the Christian way. We get our bearings from the will of God, not from this world. We are aliens. We're strangers here. We consult our sovereign. We consult his constitution in the Bible. And what he aims for us to do. We do, just like verse 12 said last week. When there's joyful, sacrificial, humble, fearless life of goodness, the slander of Christianity finally is overcome. By doing good, you may silence those who, in ignorance, are foolish men. Verse 16. Act as freedmen, free people. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. Now, this verse has been one of the most important in my own thinking through of what it means to be a Christian in the world. Be free, he's saying. Be free. Don't use that freedom for which God has set you free as a cloak for evil, saying, I'm free, I can do evil. 
Rather, realize that your freedom in the world stems from a bondage to God, slaves to God. We do not belong to the American government. We are not slaves of any people, any king, any laws on this earth. We are free and belong to our sovereign in heaven. We are bound to him. We belong to him. And our freedom on the earth flows from a slavery to God. It's a glorious thing to be enslaved to God. He has absolute authority over us, and therein lies the meaning of slavery. But there's a, a wonderful freedom in being a slave to God because he so transforms us from the inside out that we delight to do his will, and therefore his absolute sovereignty is a light burden and an easy yoke. And we relish his commands like the psalmist. Freedom is a glorious thing. And we on this earth do not submit to any institution because of the coercive powers of that institution. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom, his rule, his authority is forever. And we belong to him and we are free from every man. Martin Luther wrote a great treatise called uh, The Freedom of the Christian. And it had two theses. The Christian is the slave of all, and the Christian is free from all. And how he develops those and interweaves those is very, very powerful. Finally, verse 17. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. What's the sequence here? What's the point of this, this flow? Here's my suggestion. He begins with everybody, and the bottom line debt to everyone is honor or respect. To everybody, good, bad, failing, succeeding, ugly, pretty, smart, dumb, every race, every political view, every moral character, honor all men. Now... The form that honor will take toward a scoundrel like Judas and a saint like John is going to be different. Right? The form that honor takes towards a rapist and a murderer is different in the court than a person who is exonerated and found innocent. You put the one in jail, you let the other go free. But in that whole process, there is an honor. You don't take them out behind the courtroom and shoot them dead like you might an ox who gored somebody. There is a way to honor people in the whole system of punitive law. We are to honor everybody. We must find a way to give expression to honor, though it will have different forms for different kinds of situations and people. The second moves up a step. Concerning the, the brotherhood, the, the Christian family, there is more than honor. There is more than Respect, there is also love, there is affection, there are tears, there is endearment. And third, beyond honor, beyond this love, there is fear to God. Fear God. You don't fear anybody on the earth. You don't fear people in the church. You fear God. 
Fear the one who can cast both soul and body into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, Jesus said. Don't fear those who can only kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. We don't relate to people. We don't submit to institutions out of fear. We don't come to church out of fear. But we stand in awe of the living, holy God and we tremble before him and find our way trembling into the shadow of his cross where alone our trembling can be relieved of its torment and just become worshipful, trembling. Honor all, love the brotherhood, fear God. And now back to honor again with the king. Honor the king. Same word that we had at the beginning. Why? Don't forget the king is to be included in everybody. That'd be one way to say it. Don't forget that Nero is a man. Don't forget Clinton is a man. Honor him. I'm sure there's more. Go ahead. Beyond the honor that comes to an ordinary citizen, there is an honor that belongs to an office. God has ordained it. Add that to it. But the same word is used here for beginning and end. There is a human respect, and we must find a way to give it. Now let's move to these concluding applications that I began with. The first one was relating to whether or not we should call our president Swick, uh, Slick Willie. It almost goes without saying that I am more out of step with this president than any president in my lifetime, which is a great grief to me. He's my age exactly. First time that's ever happened. And in the election of this president, we have crossed a watershed, I believe, in terms of who is electable in this land and what they can stand for. It's an awesome thing to me what has happened. The first sermon I preached after his election Concerning that situation was how do pro-life Christians honor a pro-choice president? And it hasn't gotten easier along the way for me. And yet I want to say to you, we must find a way. There is a way to honor him. And we must do that. You may be dismayed at some of his views. You may be dismayed at some of his behaviors but you are demanded by God to honor all men and honor the president. Let me suggest one way that you might do that. Let sorrow temper indignation. Now, this doesn't mean that you will only speak when you agree and keep your mouth shut at the other times. It means that when you disagree... You will let the moral seriousness of the issue and the situation guard you from cheap, careless, insolent cynicism. Sometimes we get so angry that we feel the only expression that we can let out of our mouths is innuendo or cartoony kinds of Joking cynicism, wear the right T-shirt, you know, come up with some clever little cut. The best antidote to that is tears. 
And it's worth crying about. When you cry, you don't sound cynical. Second, this relates directly to Rush Limbaugh. I have no comment about Limbaugh's politics this morning. I, I uh, cannot help, however, but view him as, a, as such a remarkable sensation in this land in terms of the books he sells and the number of people that listen to his radio program and TV program uh, as worthy of a comment here or really just questions. Since I haven't watched him enough or listened enough to, to know the answers to these questions, I just have a concern from what people ask me about and say to me. And, and here are my, my questions. Um, do you believe that the prevailing attitude and spirit and tone, and the key word there is prevailing, because I, I don't want to be so locked in to literary devices of how you can talk that I rule out satire as occasionally legitimate. I just have this gut feeling as a Christian that satire is of limited value in the kingdom. And there's people who disagree with me on that. It's okay. I just, I, 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 um, I don't need any help to be that kind of person. You know, I am so at root cynical, and so by generation and personality ready to cast vicious satire on what I don't like. I don't need any help from Rush Limbaugh, and therefore I'd never listen to him except just long enough to preach sermons. I just don't need any help to be that way. And I find in my heart something that's so given to that tone that I want help from mature, noble, large-hearted, balanced, compassionate, tearful, far-seeing people around me so that I look Silly and puny and sniveling when I make little cuts. I don't want to be that kind of person. I want to be around people who make me grow up into large-hearted maturity that's careful. Well, now, I didn't ever finish that question. The question was, do you believe that his prevailing attitude and spirit and tone is something you want to be more prevalent in our nation and in our church? Is it a spirit that honors all men, honors in a special way the king? From show to show, does sorrow balance indignation and disdain? Does sorrow balance? I don't know. I'm asking. I have ten hundred shows I've never seen, so I'm just asking. Are there tears for terrible consequences? Are there tears for the awful consequences that he may be pointing out of certain policies and views? Is there heartfelt earnestness and concern that goes beyond cynicism? I don't know. But I have a gut feeling and I just want to warn you. Uh, do not delight so much in a person's viewpoint that you allow yourself to be contaminated by an unchristian spirit. Third, there is a spirit of anti-authoritarian rebellion in society, in the world, in the human heart, and it comes over into the church sometimes. 
is not new. Uh, it's not American. It's human. Adam and Eve rebelled. They looked at the tree that was forbidden. They looked at their heavenly father who told them what was good for them and what was bad for them. And they rebelled against him. And they said, we would rather choose for ourselves what is good for us and what is bad for us. And they ate. And that's been who we are ever since. Male and female rebels. We are rebels. We don't like authority. We don't like anybody presuming to tell us what might be good for us or bad for us. We are rebels. Now, some cultures help this along more than others and stoke it and encourage it. And we live in such a culture. I was driving through Chicago a while back and I saw a big billboard. And on one side of the billboard was image is everything. You're familiar with that probably. Image is everything. And on the other side, in big, huge red letters, the big exclamation point was the word rebel. And I started thinking about the relationship between these two. And they have a profound relationship and they capture the very essence of, I, I think, American culture today. Image is everything means what's on the inside. It's substance, it's quality, it's integrity, it's beauty, it's truthfulness, it's durability, it's firmness is irrelevant and, in fact, may not even exist. Everything that matters is what you can project so that you get. And if you get more by projecting this, you project this. And if you get more by projecting this, then you project this. Projection serves expediency and the substance on the inside is irrelevant there may be no such thing in our post-modern view of truth therefore rebel if anybody comes along and suggests that there might be some limit placed upon your projection by virtue of what is absent inside or that you might somehow be deficient or void because you're missing the substance which God has ordained. Rebel, and especially rebel against God. Because God not only thinks that image is not everything, he thinks image is nothing. Zero. At best, it's a micro-thin cellophane wrapping around nothingness or wrapping around what might be an adult child stuck at the terrible twos. God is not impressed with image. He sees right through it. It has no meaning to him whatsoever. And by all means, then, you must rebel against that kind of attack on your way of life. You've got to push him away. You've got to reject him and demean him and, and satirize his people and make them look like right-wing nuts because if he is real and if he is true and if his word has any bearing upon this earth, image is not everything. In fact, it's nothing. Everything is who I am on the inside and I have a lot of work to do in becoming something. And nobody who is given to that kind of slogan, wants to do that kind of work. This text, in the simple words, submit for the Lord's sake, 
is simply a cry. Don't be a rebellious person. Don't be a rebellious person. Humble yourself first before God and recognize how utterly dependent on him you are. How utterly dependent you are for your being, for your breath, for your salvation, your forgiveness, your eternal life, your relationship, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your not being paralyzed. Just realize how dependent you are upon him and humble yourself before him. And then let that humble you towards human institutions. You don't become thoughtless. You don't become careless. You don't become gullible. But you're not rebellious at spirit. Don't be that way. Finally, very briefly, I said that the fourth implication is that this text teaches that there are moral foundations for civil law. Very briefly, verse 14. He says that government exists to punish wrong and to praise the right. Now, would you agree with me that that text is teaching that in order for government to do its proper work, there must be such a thing as wrong and right? That's sort of the implication I get. That if the function of government is to reward right and to punish wrong, there's got to be something called wrong and right. That is a remarkable statement, you know. I mean, you live in America where most people don't believe that. That there is an absolute wrong and right. That's not just my opinion or your opinion. It's there. And if law doesn't rest on it, that's what I mean by the moral foundations of law, there's right and wrong, and law comes in secondarily and sits on that foundation of right and wrong. And then does its function, according to verse 14, rewarding the one and punishing the other. If this goes, whoosh, so that all you have is opinion and there is no right and wrong, and that develops into a whole philosophy, this is coming down. This is coming down. Because the only foundation that will sustain law is right and wrong. And when that comes down, what you get is Rwanda. And Somalia. Now, the church does not exist to guard America from anarchy, okay? That is not my bottom line this morning. This land could become Rwanda in a few years, and the Christian church would win and survive and thrive, and the kingdom would come in the way that God ordains. My, the goal of this church and us is not to save America. Our goal is to live to God, to live to God in all of life, including political and social. But in bringing people to glorify God in that way, four things will happen. If we do our job right, one, leaders will be honored. Two, civil discourse will be purged of cynicism. Three, the rebellious spirit will be humbled. And four, the foundation of law will be strengthened. And in all of that, in a kind of reverse way, the world will again see, hmm, maybe Christianity is not only good for eternal life, but good for the world, too, which it is. Let's pray. Father, I pray earnestly that we would be faithful God-centered citizens of the two worlds we live in. I glorify you that you have transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son.
And we together accept your mission now to remain here on this fallen, futility-riddled planet for a few more years. And to be aliens and exiles and to let our light shine and declare who our true sovereign is and who owns the institutions and whose standards are to underlie all law and order. Help us, I pray, just to stand up and say this, not feel like we have to win, but that we have to witness. Grant, I pray, that we would be courageous and most of all that we would be Godward in all of our dealings. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.